0: Tom's Australia tour runs from June 6th to the 30th, and you can find out more at TomKnowles.com slash Australia.
1: Sahanao <speaking in foreign language> bhavatu, sahanao bhunaktu, sahaviryam karavahavai, tijasvinava dhittamastu, avidvishavahai, Welcome to my podcast, The Vedic Worldview. I'm Tom Knowles. If you are enjoying The Vedic Worldview podcast and enjoying the material, if you're getting something out of it, I'd like you to consider something. This is a completely listener-funded program. If you'd like to make a contribution to the group effort, it would be very helpful. Today I'm interviewing and conversing with my old friend, Eddie Stern, who is the co-founder of the Ashtanga Yoga Movement here in New York City along with his wife Jocelyn. Eddie, how long have you actually been teaching here in New York City? I started teaching in New York in nineteen eighty-nine. I was teaching
0: Shivananda Yoga at the time. And then I met my teacher Patabi Joyce in nineteen ninety, began practicing with him in ninety-one. And then in 93, he gave me permission to start teaching. And that's when we started teaching Ashtanga Yoga here in New York. And uh, he was really the founder of the entire system that we're practicing now. He learned from a teacher named Krishnamacharya uh, starting in 1927. And um, Krishnamacharya, as he said, taught him this big, huge mountain of asanas. And in the late 1930s and 1937, the Maharaja of Mysore, asked Patabi Joyce, my teacher, if he would head a, a yoga department at the Sanskrit College, where interestingly enough they had never taught yoga, and in the creation of that department he had to create a syllabus. And what he did was he took all of the asanas that Krishnamacharya had taught him and broke them up into different categories that he could teach over a four-year period. That's basically what he's you know, taught from the time of 1937 until he passed away in 2009. So that's what we're teaching here, for the
1: most part, in New York. When we uh, look at the American yoga movement and experience and follow it back to its sources, I think it's correct to say, please correct me if I'm wrong, that all roads lead back to Krishnamacharya through Patabi Joyce and through Patabi Joyce's spiritual brother, who was also Krishnamacharya's uh, student, am I right?
0: Yeah, his nephew, Mr. Iyengar. Iyengar. Yeah, we basically have two roads. Um, one of them is North India, which is Swami Sivananda, mm. and his students were Vishnu Devananda, who started the Sivananda Yoga Vedanta Society, and um, Swami Satchidananda, who did integral yoga. And both of those two ashrams in schools basically spread like all around the world. So this is primarily the North Indian side, and the Bihar School of Yoga also came out from Swami Sivananda mm. through... Um, that, uh what's the Bihar School of Yoga Guru's name again? It'll come back to me in a minute when I have more coffee. <laughs> and then in the South India, we have Krishnamacharya, who taught Patabi Joyce, Iyengar, Indra Devi, and Desikachar. And so those four account for the other half of yoga, which is everywhere in the world. Mm. And there are little smatterings of other things as well. Uh, Bikram became a big force, but much later in the game. And um, uh, yeah, that's for the most part, that kind of covers it. But the interesting thing about Krishnamacharya was he taught to um, Patabi Joyce and to Iyengar a technique within asanas called vinyasa. Mm. And and he also taught that to Deskachar. Mm. And it's primarily because of that word that he used and that he taught to Patabi Joyce when Patabi Joyce started teaching in America, which was the first place he came out from India. He was the one who introduced this word vinyasa into the lexicon Mm. and then later Desikachar brought it along too. But the vinyasa yoga movement that you see today really stems from Pattabhi Joyce's dynamic approach that he learned from Krishnamacharya. Mm. So there's a huge, huge movement of yoga in America now where people have no idea really like who it came from, which was two really short, diminutive
1: South Indian gentlemen. And as you well know, because uh, you are a regular uh, traveler to India, to the source of all this, as am I. Very often in India, when you refer to yoga, Indians who are deeply embedded in the ancient Vedic traditions will look at you askants and say, oh, I see you're referring to asanas. You know, there's a distinction between the word yoga, which means the union of individual mind with cosmic mind, a thing that can be achieved in meditation. And uh, in the West, we have come to know yoga as sets of physical movements, integrated and sequential movements, which in India is referred to as asana. It's such an interesting thing to go back and forth between the two countries and see the differences in the assumptions that these words have in both cultures. What I want to talk about today is taking a piecemeal approach that many people might take to a yoga class, whatever it may be, whether they're, you know, suiting up in spandex and lycra and showing off in front of a mirror, you know, with uh, rock music playing in the background to people who take a a deeper interest and perhaps add an element of spirituality sufficient for them to turn this into a life practice. So in essence, you know, talking about how to make this a sustainable thing rather than something you do when you are a little stiff and you need to go and do a yoga class, um, whatever that might mean for somebody, your particular and forgive me for referring to it this way, but it's a movement, really. That's how I see it. It's a movement of thought and it's a mindset about the way in which yoga is practiced with a, a degree of reverence that's not found and just any old yoga studio. What is it in your experience that brings in your members and people who are regulars with you something of that quality of sustainability of experience, something they're going to do for a lifetime perhaps?
0: Well, this is a topic that has been discussed a lot with many people over the years because for those of us who... We're on a spiritual quest 30, 40 years ago and went to a place like India. We went because we were looking to expand our consciousness. We were looking for who we were, what's the meaning of life, what is the meaning of existence. These were the things that you know definitely drove me and I'm sure similar types of things drove you. And I wasn't looking to do ashtanga yoga in particular. I was definitely looking for a guru. That's why I was traveling around India. I had read Autobiography of a Yogi and I had read Milarepa and I had read all those amazing books and that made me think, you know, wow, that's, I want somebody like that who I'm going to look at them and my mind is going to blow open and I'm going to be one with the universe. And that's like what I wanted, you know, it's what so many people wanted. And on the one hand, the books and the stories were all really inspiring. On the other hand, they might have been filled with a lot of hyperbole, but it was enough to get me to India. So that's probably fine. You know, what I ended up finding eventually was Patabi Joyce. And he wasn't what I expected in a yoga teacher uh, or in a guru. But somehow I felt that he had something to teach me. And it wasn't the thing that I thought I wanted to learn. It was something different than what I thought I wanted to learn. And when you realize that someone has something to teach you, which is bigger than you, then you realize, wow, I, you know, this is where guidance comes from. This is where I can let go for a moment and just listen and see where it takes me. And that's basically what happened with him. So essentially I went to India because I was on a spiritual quest. I was doing some asanas in New York. I was also doing chanting and other things. And as part of that spiritual quest, I found a teacher who was teaching this particular thing. And I always tell people that I recognized in him that he could see something about me that I couldn't see for myself. And that's why I felt that he was my teacher. But if he had been teaching knitting or if he had been teaching you know, how to play cricket, I'd be cricket teacher right now. I wouldn't be a yoga teacher. So the yoga that I'm doing is really only a byproduct of the spiritual quest. It's a sidebar. For me, it really truly is. But on the other hand, I, I don't belittle the yoga practice itself because it's such a, um, a powerful and direct practice that it allows me to move inwardly on a daily basis and what my hope is, is that eventually I'll become a better person because of it. I will develop awareness about my breath and about my body and about how my mind works. And then I'll develop a greater awareness of how to treat the people around me and treat the planet and just be kinder and nicer and try to operate from a higher level of consciousness. And So, and I think that's anyone's hope for a spiritual practice on some level, whether it's meditation or chanting or service, like we want expanded awareness so we can live in harmony with the world and planet we inhabit with everybody else in it. And I think that the, you know, one thing which might have changed over the years is that before you had to go to a place like India and study, there were no formalized teacher trainings that I did with him. You study for a really long time until the teacher says, you're ready to teach. And in my case, he said to me, he gave me two instructions about how to teach. He said, if someone asks you to teach them, you can teach them. If they don't ask you, then you don't have to teach them. And don't advertise. And teach how I taught you and don't change anything. And those were my that was my teacher training. Like, don't change anything and don't advertise. And if no one asks you to teach them, obviously you're not meant to be teaching. So that was it, piece of cake. Nowadays, you can take a 200-hour teacher training, get a certificate, and go get a job in a yoga studio. There's no context within that for what your tradition is. 200 hours, and please, 200-hour yoga teachers, don't be insulted by this. It's really nothing. 30 years of practice, for me, is still really nothing. In the Jewish tradition, you say that... um, you know, when you're 13 and you have your bar mitzvah or you're 12 and you have your bar mitzvah, then you become a man and then, uh, but you're not ready to give counsel until you're 50. So you have these 37 years of study before you can even give advice to anybody and your advice still might really suck at that point. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, you know, these things take time, they take practice and I approach my yoga every morning as yoga. When I go down and I roll out my mat and I start doing sun salutations and all the physical postures, for me that's my spiritual discipline. My spiritual discipline is contained within my body and that's how I do it and that's why I do it. I recognize the value of having a body and the ways that I should keep mine healthy and fit so I can be active like you for as long as humanly possible. So I, I recognize the value of a body and I recognize that my spiritual practice is within my body, so I approach the asanas that I do as a well-rounded spiritual practice. And there are other things that have to go along with that. There are definitely other things that go along with that. And so as soon as you separate asanas out from everything else, maybe you're still doing yoga, but maybe you're just slightly removed from, or maybe even not ready for where you could be going with it. For a lot of people, that might be fine because, what, there's 7 billion people on the planet now? That's like a lot of people. And <laughs> and everybody uh, who comes to yoga is going to be ready for a different level of thing. Some people are only going to be ready to to hear the word yoga and say, I'm doing yoga because I'm touching my toes and because I'm lying on my back and resting 10 minutes. That might be beautiful for them. Other people might hear the word yoga and might mean They need to be sitting in meditation for four hours a day or five hours a day for other people that might be doing service. So I I allow for a full spectrum of approaches to it because um, everyone has a different need. I try not to be too judgmental about the different yogas. Every once in a while I am. But for the most part, I recognize the need that Krishnamacharya spoke about was, was that everybody needs something different. And as a teacher, you should be able to meet those needs or direct them to where they need to go and not try to superimpose your ideas
1: about what yoga or spirituality is onto another being. You know, it's fascinating to look at an historic context of the various entries of yoga into North America. I'm not sure if you're aware of or have read a book. I think it's entitled The Great Um about an American man who, and, and written by one of the former editors of Rolling Stone, this book is a fabulous read, who in the 1920s began a yoga school here in New York and then opened an ashram and circus with elephants and so on on the Hudson River, upriver from New York City, and uh, who um, counted amongst his many... Cloying, sycophantic disciples, the Vanderbilt girls, and many other famous people of the time. Interestingly uh, enough, our school is on Vanderbilt Avenue. <laughs> is, is that in Brooklyn? <laughs> yeah. Yes. The, bro- the Brooklyn Yoga Club. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's so interesting. And uh, uh, I highly recommend uh, that's a cracking good read. What happened to him, and I can't remember his proper English name. He had adopted a Sanskrit name in the 20s and 30s. Is that by the late 1930s, he had been vilified so ferociously by vested interests that were cultural and religious vested interests into, you know, being somebody who held orgies regularly and so on and so forth that he was virtually put out of business and shut down. And that particular entry of yoga into America vanished and virtually vanished from the history books too. So the book makes that a very interesting read because then the second wave came, which, you know, in in our modern context, we kind of look at as the first wave. Now I walk through a grocery store and see a box of Rice Krispies and, you know, it just caught my eye that at at the bottom, you know, in a little corner sidebar recommending that eaters of Rice Krispies uh, do yoga. I wonder Uh, if I could get them as a sponsor. (laughs) When I first got into Vedic meditation fifty years ago, it would have been inconceivable to me that you would see on a box of cereal from Kellogg's, you know a recommendation to get into yoga, you know whatever that might mean for you. And you know they're not pushing a particular type of yoga. It was just you know, yoga in general. Look it up, you know, kind of thing. I'm using that as an example of how pervasive this thing has become as mostly a force of good i know for a fact that there's still cultural and religious pushback uh there are you know reports about when yoga is introduced to schools in various parts of the country there'll be students who show up that you know are wearing t-shirts or holding little signs saying you know i don't do yoga i believe in jesus I'd like to know any stories you might have because you've been around here so long. This whole scene of the introduction of Vedic and yoga ideas into United States. And you've just said that the more spiritual elements of the theoretical underpinnings that came with the practice of physical asanas was one of the sustaining forces or the sustaining force for your practice. And, and I would guess from that 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 would be true of a fair number of the people who have learned from you or are practicing what you've been teaching over the years. What stories or anecdotes or facts might you have about cultural pushback in the United States in particular around this invasion of Indian ideas into the West, as we might put it? I mean, I'm not as... Uh, literate
0: on a lot of these things there are people who've studied this very deeply and um written books um, Stephanie Simon and some other people have written really nicely about all of these topics um, you know in nineteen eighty six or so when I really started practicing 86, 87, it was still only you know fifteen years or so after Ramdas came back from India and started traveling around the country and talking about Neem Karoli Baba and only about 15 years or so after, I mean, Maharishi Mahesh came to California in, what, 1969 or was it 67? His first entry was 58. 58, wow. Mm. Yeah, and also um, Prabhupada was earlier as well yes. um, and i guess so i can't remember what year Prabhupada came and so this was basically like a big chanting movement and mm-hmm. Maharishi Mahesh was a big meditation movement mm-hmm. there wasn't really this introduction of asanas and stuff like that i think mm-hmm. Ram Das probably was the first sort of westerner to begin mm-hmm. pushing it but mm-hmm. earlier than that was Swami Vishnu Devananda in the mm-hmm. late 1950s 1960s too and um Swami Sachidananda at integral yoga mm-hmm.
1: I remember Swami Satchitananda at Woodstock. At Woodstock. That's what I meant, uh,
0: at Woodstock. So that's um, a bunch of names right there to introduce it. So I came around 1986, say 15 to 20 years after things were getting rolling and yoga was still very much a fringe, you know, on the edge, very granola type of a thing. And there were only a couple of yoga schools in New York. I was going to all of them. We didn't really expect Or think about yoga as being anything like it is today. There was no expectation of um, that you could make a living being a yoga teacher, you know, that you could send your daughter to private school by being a yoga teacher. You know, all these things were, came along a a lot later. And I think one of the things that happened is um, as more people started having access to these practices, there were teachers and doctors and people in the military School teachers, that is, who and nurses and politicians who all were being introduced to yoga, meditation, chanting because of the lifestyles they lived or just general exposure. And they saw that there was a benefit to these things and decided to try to include them into different aspects of society. Now, right now, there's a very, very big movement of yoga and healthcare, yoga in schools. Uh, yoga and politics. Congressman Tim Ryan has regular meditation sessions in Washington. And um, one of the uh, things which has happened because of that, especially in public education, is this idea that yoga is a religious practice or that yoga is the worship of Satan and that it should not be done by anybody, especially not done by anybody in the schools. Uh, There was an organization that I was working for Uh, for a while in California that had developed a curriculum for public education over there and the school district ended up getting sued by a group of parents who said that yoga did not belong in the schools, separation of church and state, it was a religious practice. The judge ruled that though yoga was religious in nature, it was not a religion and it was being done in a secular way by so many people in America already that there really didn't seem to be a problem with it. And there was an appeal and they lost the appeal as well. So after that decision, basically yoga was okay, at least for California. Mm. A lot of instances of small things like this cropping up here and there. And uh, my feeling is that, um as I said before, yoga is definitely a spiritual practice. It is the understanding of the distinction between who we are and what we're observing of object and subject or subject and object and what is the relationship between those two things. Um, As you put it, the merging of the individual mind with a universal or cosmic mind. And Yoga Sutras, it doesn't necessarily say cosmic mind, but it says that when the mind is completely still, then the sea remains as itself, meaning you know who you are, and you know also what all the changing phenomena around you are as well. I don't necessarily think those are things that a five-year-old or a seven-year-old needs to be taught or think about, but I do think that there are certain self-regulation practices in yoga that are helpful for people in general, whether you're five or fourteen. To have some skill with your body and to learn how to regulate your nervous system through breathing, to learn what it means to pay attention, what does it feel like to pay attention, how attention is a state of your body and your nervous system and your mind all coming into a harmony with each other is a useful skill for any school bound person to learn. Because as I've said before in discussing these things with people in public education, you know, we tell kids all the time pay attention, pay attention, pay attention but we don't tell them what attention is or who to pay it to, and we just say assume that because you say pay attention that a person knows what to do. But attention is a skill that's like saying tie your shoe, and you can't tie your shoe until you're taught how to do it, and it takes a long time to figure out how to tie your shoe. And then when you finally get it, you feel like, oh my God, I can tie my shoe, I'm a big person now. And the same is true with a skill like attention. We need to learn the strategies um, that help us to embody a state where we're able to be present. That's a really good thing for any human being to learn who wants to live in the world happily with other people. If you're not able to do that, then you're going to you know, be reactive, you're going to lose your temper, you're going to get frustrated, all the types of things that we see happening to people all the time. Mm. So when we take certain parts of yoga out from a spiritual and philosophical tradition and say, look, your body, your nervous system, and your mind are all really important tools that you can learn to to harness and to maximize, then that's good. But the philosophical things, I don't really think that belongs so much in public education. And so I'm very big on the health and wellness movement in schools. I'm not so big on yoga, you know, in quotes, the yoga movement in schools because there are a lot of things about yoga which I don't believe belong in public education. So I agree with the Christian fundamentalists on some of those things, but not Mm -hmm. on all the things that they say. There's a happy
1: meeting place. Well, it it harks back to what your yoga master, guru, Sri Patabi Joyce, who, by the way, I met many years ago in India, wonderful man, put down as a requirement for you, no teaching without worthy inquiry. Yeah, exactly. You know, if there's not worthy inquiry, why are you teaching? You know, if someone doesn't ask for it, yeah. don't teach. Yeah, And I, I think that this is a, a fabulous rule of thumb that we have to continue bringing the best of what came out of these ancient sciences into the West, allow a continued scrutiny by scientific and medical research to demonstrate that any human being who participates in this is going to get better in every way as any good healthy skill would would give you if you apply it regularly and then when when the day comes that there's enough evidence i think that the population will be going to the schools and demanding yoga
0: yeah that's Uh, our hope and that's our hope
1: when that day comes I often refer to that as, you know, the kind of the fire hose of interest. Do you think if it was to happen in the next 10 years, would there be enough skilled yoga teachers to meet that kind of level of demand?
0: Well, definitely not. I mean, there are not even enough skilled public school teachers to meet the demand of, <laughs> well of um, all the kids who need to be educated in our country. There's not enough qualified anybody mm-hmm. to fill. We have just too many people in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not saying that we should get rid of them. I'm just mm-hmm. saying there's so many people that yeah. it's a lot of demand to fill. Yeah. But I think you're. it's a really accurate thing that you've said that public policy and public need drives Policy change in healthcare and government and places like that. This is a, a bottom-up approach where real change happens. And interestingly enough, this is one of the reasons why yoga is such an effective practice because it's a bottom-up approach to self-regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, you start at the brainstem with autonomic nervous system mm-hmm. function, and then you move upwards towards cortical function, strategic planning, and all those types of mm-hmm. things. So. In the same type of way, I think an analogy could be made for where the need is, where you first feel a need, a survival need. We need this to be healthy. We need this to be balanced. We need this so our kids can be less stressed, so they can regulate all the incoming um, demands that are placed upon them. That is definitely a bottom-up regulation type of a thing. So that would be good for the country, Mm. uh, I think. And there are a lot of people working on it. And there's a lot of research being done, more and more research uh, every day is being done. We have, um, I have a colleague named Marshall Hagans from Long Island University. We put on a science and yoga conference, we're going to have our fourth one in January, January 19th and 20th in Brooklyn. We have scientists coming from all around the world who will be presenting their research on yoga and meditation and the ways that it is effective is a neurophysiological self-regulatory technique. A lot of different techniques from loving-kindness meditation all the way up to asana practice. Mm. Uh, We have a woman named Gail Parker, PhD, who will be presenting on the stress-based trauma that comes just because of the color of your skin. So it's race-based stress trauma Mm. um, and practices that you can do to integrate that reality into yourself. So a lot of really different things will be presented with amazing people, and you see these sort of wide ranges of um, of interest coming out. The research, Dr. Stephen Porges, who is uh, the creator of the polyvagal theory, which has basically introduced a hierarchical, different hierarchical levels of the vagus nerve and how that responds in predictable manners to things that happen in our environment didn't create this theory for yoga and meditation but it turns out that it's such an apt explanation of what happens when you do yoga that many yogis have gravitated towards him mm-hmm. and he's become basically like a, a, a pop icon of the autonomic nervous system <laughs> for a whole generation of yoga practitioners including myself and meditation mm-hmm. practitioners mm-hmm. so he'll be coming this year also and um,
1: a lot of people will be really looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Eddie, to what extent are you able to take some of the Jewish ideals as you learn them, some of the Kabbalistic ideas which are permeating Jewish thought, and see parallels and feel as though this Vedic, yogic approach, to what extent it actually satisfies some of those criteria that are culturally so strong all over the world?
0: And when we were on Broom Street, and we had our yoga school. we also have a Ganesha temple, which you you had seen on Broome Street. This was a very Vedically consecrated Hindu temple that we did regular worship in. We're now rebuilding it in Brooklyn. Downstairs from us was a place called the Soho Synagogue, which was a synagogue run by two Orthodox young Orthodox Jews. And we became friends. and we started a we started a little bit of a a, a study group where every two weeks or so, I would get together with them and a Christian pastor and an agnostic friend, and we would pick a topic and we would discuss it from all the different viewpoints. The overlap between the Kabbalistic ideas and the yogic ideas was like 99% mirrored. And I continued later on to study with one of the rabbis, Rabbi Rabbi Mendel Jacobson, on a regular basis when i decided that for my 50th birthday i wanted to get bar mitzvah because i never had been and so we met every week and we we studied and he taught me stuff and we discussed the overlaps between these different traditions everything from elemental things to cosmic things to the idea of repairing the universe to the idea um of the, you know, infinite amounts of rays of light which have expanded when God created the universe, which is very similar to Sankhya if you take the God out of it. Mm-hmm. And um so and then I did my bar mitzvah with him, and we when I turned 50, which was in December, and we continue to study. We're planning on doing some writing together as well. I think the thing which is key is that the mystical branches of every religious tradition have a lot in common because truth is truth and some of the terminology will be different but when you meet a mystic on the road you know you know that you've (laughs) met a a a like-minded brother or sister and i think that's really our meeting place and i also think that i have come to yoga not as a mystic but with a mystic sensibility which was um my question was and these were the Questions that I learned from my English teacher in ninth grade, the three most important questions to ask yourself Who am I? What am I doing here? And what do I do next? And we were reading Siddhartha. She said, These are the three most important things you can ask yourself Who am I? What am I doing here? What's my purpose? And what do I do next? How do I bring my purpose out into the world? And that's literally the only thing I remember from high school. Hmm. And I got to India and I started reading Ramana Maharshi and I thought, Oh my God. Mrs. Benditson was 100% onto it, you know so that's sort of the underlying thing like that drives it everything else is um, being stuck in a click, you know Mm. everything else is aligning yourself with some flag waving something Mm. which doesn't bring you anything so Mm. as um, A.G. Mohan says don't wave a flag for anything but always search for the truth, I follow the teachings of my teacher because they're good and they work, and I committed myself to them. So, but I don't, you know, run around thinking Ashtanga yoga is the only way of doing it. Mm. It's one way of doing it. Mm. So uh, I've really enjoyed studying with uh, Rabbi Mendel because I love commonality, I love overlap, and I love to to hear about the things that shine a light on what I've been thinking about from a slightly different angle. Um, it just expands the whole vision of what it is that we're looking for Mm. people especially some of my hindu friends they've said um when i've been asked you know are you a hindu and i say no i'm jewish i was born from jewish parents and i identify as being culturally jewish but i practice hinduism because i'm very drawn to it that's normal for me i don't i'm not as comfortable practicing um judaism even though i do some of the rituals But it's very normal for me and comfortable to to worship Ganesh. And I feel that's part of my spiritual dialogue. Many people say you cannot convert to Hinduism. You have to be born a Hindu, including my teacher. So uh, I accept that. But he said if you have the samskara, anyone is free to practice it. So some people have said to me, you know, well, you should convert to Hinduism. How can you call yourself a Jew? And I say, you know, one of the things Taithiri Upanishad teaches at the very end The guru gives the instruction to the student, Devo bhava, pitradevo bhava, let your mother be like a god unto you, your father be like a god to you. How could I go against the life they've given me by renouncing our entire religious and cultural upbringing? Um, So I don't. That would be cutting myself off from all of my ancestry, which is amazing. I'm going all the way back to the uh, Vilna Goan, which is a very deep, you know, Judaic religious tradition. Mm. So I'm very proud to be part of connected to that, even if I happen to
1: worship deities. (laughs) (laughs) That's, you know, that that little group of subjects is a whole nother episode of podcast, which we might do together at a future date. You know, it's like part two where we can look at all of the uh, crossovers between Kabbalistic Judaism, indeed mystical Christianity, and I'm making a distinction between that and literalism and fundamentalism, and and indeed mystical atheism, which does exist in my experience. People who will say they don't believe in God, however, one famous physicist said to me, I don't believe in God, however, I will acknowledge that there's one indivisible whole conscious thing and everything comes out of it, but I don't believe in God. (laughs) And I said, well, all right, I I think we're down to semantics now. Exactly.
0: Semantics and also all of the um,
1: superimposition that goes on the
0: idea of God as the judger. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. The various concepts of the individual imaging and then what the consequences are, and and who are the authorized agent of such a being. Oh, yes. You know, that to me, I can understand why people will declare themselves to be atheists because of their feeling reviled by what's been done in the name of various religions. A very cogent topic right now in world news. But let's get on to another topic. You have a, a book out. I have a book coming out coming out it's not out yet no it's not out yet when will it launch Uh, it comes out on march 12th
0: and it's called one simple thing a new look at the science of yoga and how it can transform your
1: life and what's in it (laughs) Uh,
0: the basic idea behind it are uh, what are the is similar to work i do with Marshall. what are the underlying mechanisms that make yoga an effective practice of self-regulation transformation and connection one of the things that drove me to write it was lectures I'd been doing over a three-year period investigating yoga and the nervous system and the overlays between western ideas of the nervous system and yogic ideas of the nervous system. And particularly, I was curious about why you would take, say, one type of yoga, let's take ashtanga yoga, and you could have the same type of sequence being done for everybody one person might come into that class with high blood pressure one person might come in with anxiety one person might come in with stiff body or back pain another person might come in because they're not sleeping well another person might come in because they're on a spiritual quest and all those people come into that class and they do the same thing and they all start feeling better and the thing which needs to be fixed starts getting fixed Sometimes a little bit, sometimes a lot of a bit. And I wondered, how is that possible? How can this, and that's why it's called One Simple Thing, how can this one simple thing called yoga be so effective in so many different types of instances of things that need, that are a little bit off-kilter that need to be helped? So I started looking at this idea of homeostasis and homeostasis is the ability of our body to bring itself back into balance. When there is something going slightly wrong with the body or with the emotions, then our homeostatic functions may not be performing at optimal. And yoga seems to be effective at addressing homeostasis on different types of levels. And homeostasis, when it's being supported, it kind of knows what to do. It knows how to keep the body in balance and functioning. Sometimes it just needs a little bit of help. So yoga seems to be one of those things which is going to help this part of our autonomic nervous system to keep us in balance and to auto correct the things that need to be corrected now there's a lot more to it than that Mm. but um as a very general overview like that's what got me interested in this Mm. and it led to a whole host of other things um the vagus nerve inflammation the triune brain theory how our cortical level of our brain has largely developed for us to be social beings and how social connection is a very important part of our spiritual quest and well-being. So all these types of things are are in the book.
1: As a teacher like you, I am beyond deeply impressed that you were able to write a book. People have been after me to write books for decades. I've all but given up on the idea and people have said to me, well, let's get you a ghostwriter, but then my ego says, no ghostwriter is going to be able to write it as well as me. <laughs> <laughs> That's for <laughs> sure. So it just doesn't get written. So I've decided to just leave behind as my legacy tens of thousands of hours of recorded material and somebody else can write books one day about whatever it is that I managed to learn from my teachers. How hard was it to write a book? I mean, you know, I'd be hearing it from a friend and colleague like you, I'm just so fascinated. How hard was it? How long did it take you? Okay. Well, I had collaborated
0: on a few books before this. Mm. And so I had a little bit of experience in the publishing world, but I'd never written one entirely on my own. I didn't know if I'd be able to do it. The idea developed over a several year period. And then when I finally got down to writing, it took about six months. Mm. And I wrote... in you know i write in the mornings before i practice so basically i get up at three or three i'd make some coffee have a shower and then i would write for an hour pretty much each morning until i finished it hmm. and that was that and um the hardest part is i'm 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 not i'm a good person for big ideas but i'm not great on the details so the hard part was like you know all the passes going through it and cleaning things up and But that part was really good because after I turned in the first um, draft of the book and my editor, Jeff, gave it back to me with suggestions, I really could flesh it out and elaborate and go a lot deeper than I'd gone through the first pass. So the second draft was really enjoyable because I'd gotten everything out on paper and then I could see what was missing and start filling it in. But I, I really viewed the book as this just one thing that I wanted to talk about. I just this was the only thing was basically like nervous system, and a particular idea about the nervous system, of where uh, the kleshas or the obstructions that occur in chapter two of the Yoga Sutras, where do they exist within us physiologically? So avidya, which is not knowing who we are, and asmita, the narrative we make up when we don't know who we are, and raga and dvesha that are you know desires and aversions that our narrative is based on in fear of death or fear of extinction. These are all survival things like we, we we live by these things. And they keep us living in ignorance or in this not knowing. But do they have a physiological location? And I decided that they did and that was in our brainstem, stem where our survival functions actually exist. So I wanted to investigate this idea of where how our survival functions which is respiration, heart rate, blood pressure, digestion, sexual reproduction, and sleep, these have a physical location in the brainstem. And how do the clashes, which basically are are intimately tied into these, how are they connected? So for example, if we have a fear of death, that means that we want to remain alive. And so in order for us to remain alive, we need to breathe. We need to do some other things too, but we have to be breathing. So the body is gonna keep breathing, not just because that's what it does, but because there's a subtle thing in us, it says don't die, right? Mm-hmm. So that's Abinevesha, like in our respiratory mechanism. So I was interested in examining this. And that's like, you know, if, if by the end of the book, that's really what it's about. That's where I'm heading towards. And I had seen, as many people do, you know, you see books by Kant or by Hegel or Heidegger and and they're basically lectures that they give, and they turn these lectures into a book. And the and Plato and Socrates and all the old philosophers they would do this as well. And the Upanishads too, where a philosopher would expound on like one point, and then that would be it. That would be the book. And then you know maybe later on they'd say something different, or they'd tweak it a little, or they'd add to it. So I thought if I could just say this one thing. If I have anything to say later, I can, but for the time being, let me just try to articulate this one thing. And that's basically what the experiment was. And I hope it works. I hope it's good. I hope I'm kind of right. (laughs) (laughs) I hope people like it. I hope it it inspires people to practice. Mm. And I passed the idea by a bunch of people before I wrote it. Like I spoke about it with Deepak Deepak Mm -hmm. Chopra. And... Murali um, Doryaswamy and Zubashkak and a bunch of like scientist philosophers and who know a lot about Vedic knowledge. And um, I passed my idea by them. I told some, t- some different points and, and enough of them said that sounds pretty good to me, mm-hmm. that um, it, it made me feel confident to put it down on paper. Mm-hmm. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad that I was able to get this far with it. Yes. You should write a book.
1: <laughs>
0: no, you know what? Even if you leave behind like 100,000 hours of recordings, that's fine. People
1: will listen to them. Who has time to read, And anyway. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thus this podcast. Eddie, I notice all through the teachings of yoga and all of its various forms from the most superficial, and I was in Los Angeles recently, and I, I couldn't help but uh, walk past, you, see, you know, walking past a particular yoga studio, and it has a big sign outside no Sanskrit, no no chanting, uh, <laughs> just yoga. And oh I thought, my God. hang on, the word yoga is Sanskrit. It's a Sanskrit word. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it went on with, you know, no beads, no incense, no, you know, it's like, okay. So, you know, from the stripped down to the fully fleshed, which I would consider your uh, approach to be, you know, the fully fledged, With acknowledgement of tradition and you know its origins and sources and open acknowledgement of where it came from there's the spectrum and yet throughout all of these offerings of what's called yoga in quotes uh, all over North America and we're just talking North America for the moment it's rare ever to find a disciplined and regular approach to meditation and as I understand it, and I'd like to hear your view on it, traditionally in India, asana, meaning you know, the physical positions and pranayama, the breathing techniques that append asana, are a preparation for meditation. What has been your experience, if you would give me a little history of your dabblings in or dedication to meditation techniques and how much of a role did they play in your training? meditation
0: and chanting was the first thing i started with mm-hmm. um the first thing i started with was lsd actually in mushrooms <laughs> <laughs> and then that led me to ramdas which led me to meditation and chanting mm-hmm. and then later i did asanas the first time i went to a yoga class quote-unquote yoga class and they were mm-hmm. doing sun salutations and standing on their head i thought mm-hmm. this has nothing to do with yoga mm-hmm. that was like my first impression mm-hmm. after having this you know meditation and chanting intro the fact that there's a yoga school that says no sanskrit is so funny i mean it's a sanskrit word the entire tradition was taught in sanskrit that's idiocy <laughs> uh, you know sorry kids it's just dumb <laughs> so you know educate yourselves <laughs> yes. And this is the only thing you can say you know you 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 know you gotta educate yourself and um and not be afraid of something that comes from another country, Mm. especially if, you know, you're doing it. And then Mm. what are you doing if there's Mm. no Sanskrit there? Mm. Anyway, so that's what I started off with. I was primarily, I mean, Sanskrit in chanting is really a big love and a big interest of mine. I had wanted Patabi Joyce to teach me Sanskrit, and for years he wouldn't. He said it was too hard. So I studied with other teachers. I found much more of a direct and immediate inward pull from these sacred syllables that make up the Sanskrit language. It certainly leads you towards a, a meditative state and um, does something to your brain for sure. So um, I have always had a chanting practice. Um, my meditation practice has mainly been with japa, with repetition of mantra. I was taught TM meditation by one of your old compatriots a bunch of years ago and um which i think is a very very effective meditation uh technique out of the different ones i've tried it's probably resonates with me the most effortlessly and i don't do it regularly anymore because i have a lot of other kind of practices that i need to maintain but um you know it's probably not the wisest thing to say. I do TM occasionally, <laughs> but I <laughs> I do. And I if I had more time in the day and mm-hmm. I didn't have to teach so much and do so many administrative things, mm-hmm. then I would make sure that it was a an everyday thing. So that when they, when I have more time and I'm traveling or something and I don't have you know then I'll I'll stick with the program with the twice a day. But honestly, if I have to practice for an hour and a half each day and do our worship in the temple and also do my japa. Mm. I need three hours every morning and I just don't have that. Mm. So I'm lucky if I can get two and that still means I have to get up at three in the morning. (laughs) So yoga asanas as preparation for pranayama, as preparation for meditation, is the sequencing of Patanjali. The word asana, us is the verbal root sit and ana means breath. So to do an asana is literally to sit with your breath in whatever position you're in. And that's to sit with a natural breath. And then pranayama is to sit with a measured, controlled breath. And then meditation or or concentration, which comes next, is to allow your mind to be resting on one point and then on the next point and then on the next point in a continuous fashion until your awareness becomes steady and smooth and continuous. So the the concentration goes from one point to the next point to the next point. And then meditation is just a smooth point. You're just like a flow, continuous flow. And then the samadhi or the absorption is when the thing you're meditating on and you become as if one. So the reason that asanas are so important is it allows you to remain steady. Uh, It allows the body to settle down and become strong to handle whatever kind of energy is going to start pouring into you from the deeper practices. So if you start working with the nervous system and the different pranayama practices, uh, because you're messing with your nervous system, which is very, very, very finely tuned, things could go wrong if you're not prepared. And the same thing goes true with concentration practices. If you have some traumas that you're not ready to face and they are too exposed to you through concentration practices, it could lead to... You becoming troubled or um, experiencing things that your nervous system doesn't know what to do with quite yet. So the Patanjali sequence of events of asana, pranayama, concentration, meditation makes a lot of sense in a holistic world.
1: I don't know if that was clear it was it was it was clear to me Mm -hmm. and um i I think that our listeners will follow along beautifully and one of the advantages they have that that we don't have here while we're recording things is they can go back and listen to it again so (laughs) please do listeners those were all very important points a potentially controversial issue and i'd love to hear your take on it the attempt to have sustained heightened spiritual experience through various kinds of hallucinogens. And, you know, the current darling rapidly percolating into American consciousness is Ayahuasca. Would you mind sharing a few thoughts with me about your impressions and ideas about it? Yeah, well, in Chapter 4 of the Yoga Sutra,
0: Patanjali does say that um, using herbs is one way to achieve samadhi, as well as birth. You can be born with that ability. And you can use mantra to do that as well. Quite often I hear people saying that the herbs he's talking about are hallucinogens, but he uses the word "oshadi," which is the word for herbs used in Ayurveda. So it's not necessarily hallucinogenics or marijuana or anything like that. It could just be um, supportive herbs of uh, natures that I don't know that are able to help you heighten your consciousness and heighten your A level of awareness and ability to focus caffeine for example is something that when used wisely can heighten your energy levels and your focus if used unwisely it will make you very scattered and lead to acidity in your stomach so there are a lot of different types of herbs that you find naturally that can support that you said one of the best things about the use of something like ayahuasca that I have repeated since then in these discussions, which was that when you do a hallucinogen quite often, you don't have a repeated experience, but the experience will be different. And that was definitely what happened when I was taking LSD and taking mushrooms. I think with DMT, people quite often find a very similar type of experience that they have. I don't know what happens over sustained amounts of times, if it's always the same. But when you go deeply into yourself, Awareness is always the same. You have a repeated experience of being, a repeated experience of consciousness, a repeated experience of a non narrative existence for a little while. And it's always the same every time you go in there. So, and one of the things which is key in yoga is something called uh, samskara. And um samskara is an impression that we get. And I know you already know this, but I'll say for the benefit of whoever might not know this who's listening to us. We have three things. One, we have karma. Karma means an action. An action leaves an impression. And that impression is called a samskara. So if I have some ice cream when I'm a young kid and it's really good, then that act of eating the ice cream has left the impression of this was something desirable. That impression or the memory, which is samskara, leads to a vasana, which is a desire, to repeat the experience again. When that desire becomes strong enough and I'm able to fulfill it, I act on it, which is karma. And I eat the ice cream again. I have a reinforced memory that ice cream is good. And then the vasana, the desire, continues to grow. This is called the vritti samskara chakra. So I keep on reinforcing my desire through my action, and I strengthen the memory of it. The experience of our true nature or of knowing who I am through meditation or any other technique is going to be this repeated same experience of being. And every time I go into that experience, I'm creating a new samskara of presence, unadulterated, and that will give me the desire to repeat that experience. The key to a samskara is that it needs to basically be the same if it's leading towards awareness. If it's a samskara that's leading us towards only slaking our desires in the world, then what's going to happen is we're going to chase after fleeting temporary sensation, fleeting temporary experience. And every time we have that fleeting experience it's going to be slightly different slightly unsatisfying so we feel we need to do it again so that we try to recapture that first beautiful essence of what it was this is a lot of the reason why people keep doing drugs if they did it once and everything was great then they wouldn't need to do it again and people say well isn't the same true for meditation don't you just need to do it once and then never do it again And my answer to that would be, well, it's slightly different because the reason or ultimate reason why we might meditate is for this, for knowing who we are, is for self-knowing. And the reason we have to do it again is we very quickly forget who we are when we go back into the world. The more we can reinforce the self-knowing, the more we're likely to remember at the time when we need it which is when we get angry or when uh, we feel judgmental or self-righteous or all of those types of things or when someone needs help we need to remember at that time who we are we don't need to remember you know the amazing trip that we had Uh, we need to remember to be present so i don't deny that and i've never done ayahuasca because this came along way after i had left the drug scene so i don't deny that LSD and mushrooms and ecstasy were not helpful tools for me. They were. I learned a lot. But what I learned from them very quickly was that the thing I was looking for, yoga and meditation and chanting, would get me much quicker without any side effects. Meaning I wouldn't feel like shit the next day. You know, I would, be, I would get up ready to do it again. You cannot do LSD every day. It stops working. You can't do ecstasy every day. Not only does it stop working, it'll start making you feel really, really bad. But you can meditate every day. You can do yoga every day. You can chant every day and always feel better for it and more connected for it. And if connection is essentially what we're looking for, then the tool of connection should be something that is going to be ever-present in our lives. Those are just some of my basic thoughts. Um, I don't want to take away the choice that anyone has to try these things. But I I do question that they are a necessary and continuous adjunct to a spiritual practice. That's my opinion. I could be wrong. I'm wrong about
1: a lot of things. What do you think? Well, in our tradition and my particular branch of it, the teaching is that heightened consciousness states are best arrived at through the mind leading and the body following beautiful Uh, and so the consciousness is able to have a deep impression of the unboundedness at the source of thought and all the layers leading up to that ultimate place the different layers of, of experience that can be had very deep inside of individual consciousness and then beyond individual consciousness to the absolute when the mind goes there the body follows and the body is adapting in grades and eventually creates a neurophysiological style of functioning that will support the mind maintaining those states permanently. It's also considered that if you have a physiology-led heightened experience, you lack context. So if you take a, a drug of any kind, whether it's you know referred to as, quote unquote, the medicine, which uh, it, it always cracked me up because I hear people referring to marijuana and LSD and, and uh, ayahuasca as the medicine. These you know, things are used as medicines in some proper contexts. Then you have the physiology dictating to the mind what the mind will be experiencing. A portal is torn open into which our consciousness is thrust into super-conscious phenomena that do exist inside the consciousness realm, but our mind is experiencing it without any context. You might see beings, you might see personifications, you might experience becoming those beings, you might have all kinds of amazing experiences, but it's body-led. The body is forcing the consciousness into that state and there's no lead up, there's no context and perspective is missing. And so then when you return from that, the mind is lacking a context in which to integrate that into everyday life. And it's, it can be absolutely mind-expanding and mind-blowing, but it's very difficult to get an accurate interpretation of what it all meant with reference to your everyday life. On the other hand, as you do a consciousness-led phenomenon where body follows the consciousness gradually 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 and repeatedly and you mentioned that point of having a regular experience of the same fabrics of consciousness the same things and information about what's in there grows and grows and grows and as it grows context for each experience also grows and the brain and the physiology are able gently to follow and adapt and then there's absolutely no doubt. I mean, people come to me after I've been meditating for 50 years. You've never taken any drugs. I I just missed out on all that because I was, you know, a meditator as a teenager. I was already a teacher when I was a teenager. So I, I grew up in an ashram mentality. And though I was a child of the 60s, uh, you know, growing up as a teenager and things in the 60s, I, I just missed out on all that. I've never had a drink. I've never had a cigarette. I don't poo-poo these things. And I haven't even given up on the idea. I might have a drink this afternoon. Who knows? Um, Where should we go? (laughs) (laughs) It'll have to be an Irish pub. I'm always fascinated by those Irish ones. Um, uh, So, you know, people are sometimes amazed because of my age and because of the period in which I grew up during those impressionable times that I've never had a drug. And they'll often say to me things like, you should try it come away to Peru or you don't need to go to Peru. There's a guy I know in Venice Beach who's a shaman, you know, and bring your own bucket. Um, (laughs) You might be doing a bit of vomiting. Have the experience. And when I think about what I experience standing on a street corner as a 50-year meditator, when I think about what I experience in my own meditation practice, I think that if I were to take my experience and somehow magically insert it into the head of an average person who hasn't had the context of 50 years of meditation they would think they're tripping i'm certain that right now while i'm talking to you i'm tripping balls Mm -hmm. but i just don't know because i've normalized it and the reason i know that my consciousness state is different is i see around me overreactions going on all the time to all kinds of things that don't warrant overreaction I seem to possess a context. Now this not just sounds like a story about me, but that's a story about anyone who has had regular exposure to expanded consciousness on a daily basis every single day. You make that your practice, then you end up in a sustained heightened consciousness state. One of my conversations on this podcast was with a man who is an expert in the field of psychedelic experience. To me, the definition of a psychedelic experience is that it's a thing that is episodic. You know, you are not in the psychedelic experience and then you take something and you induce a psychedelic experience. But then after that, you're not in the psychedelic experience anymore. And so it's episodic. I think that our Vedic and yogic traditions teach us that rather than having occasional mind-boggling Experiences with very little context and almost no perspective for them to have gentle everyday expansion, gentle everyday expansion. Someone who is quotes-unquotes enlightened probably doesn't even know they are. The only way you can tell the difference is that under demands and pressures and so on, they might behave in ways that are more sustainable than other people, but they don't particularly feel enlightened. They just have a regular capacity to meet the demands of the world more adaptively to meet the demands of the world with more stability and a capacity to integrate. And then there's this other odd thing that they seem more often to be in the right places at the right time and less often in the wrong places at the wrong times and be able to have a broader philosophical understanding of why it's so. And that's rooted directly in their daily practice like you i don't poo-poo people's right to experiment and i'm always in favor of people taking note of their research outcomes if you've done research on something and you have a particular outcome then you know in good science we might look for a replication by doing the research again to see if we have the same outcome but generally speaking a triplication is not necessary once you have your outcomes then you need to take note of those. And um, I'm so much in favor of gentle development of heightened consciousness states that are consciousness-led, not physiology-led. That's my take on it. Beautiful. Now I want to start a podcast so I can bring you on it.
0: (laughs) You know, there is interesting work going on. Um, I uh, met a couple of doctors who were doing work with ketamine and people who have uh, deep depression and anxiety states, and they're helping to rewire neurological function through ketamine. So this is an interesting application of it. And um, end-of-life care with LSD, there's been some written about that. I haven't read Michael Pollan's new book yet, but I would like to. So I think there definitely are interesting applications of these types of drugs for particular things, but as a spiritual lifestyle, I don't quite see it because of everything you just said as well in the same way we can use yoga to help heal or rebalance particular mechanisms of the nervous system i think that there can be certain uses of psychedelics or of things like ketamine for doing that to the nervous system too but when it comes to a continuous experience of being who you are that lasts throughout the day as you said it's not episodic it is supposed to become continuous so that becomes your reality And the danger of thinking that what you experience on psychedelics is more real than what you experience here is also where people can get lost in the world of
1: drugs mm-hmm. it's so interesting you know as well as i do that when you read vedic texts there's a constant reference to a substance a, a juice called soma s-o-m-a soma yeah. And, you know, Soma is praised, and Soma is also thought of as personified as a god and is often associated with the moon, um, Soma Chandra. You the know, nectar as of immortality. The nectar of immortality, the amrit, the, you know, the thing that makes you immune to death. And Soma was a topic that I raised with my teacher, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, at a time when he was sitting with the, the then-sitting Shankaracharya Shankaracharya is the name we have in India for the king of the yogis. And I said, you know, where do you find Soma? Because it's extolled for its virtues, for raising consciousness and all that, the Soma plant. And Maharishi gestured to the Shankaracharya, who didn't speak much English, and asked him to give his answer and translated his answer. And the answer was that, do you know where the Soma plant is? is and i said well i've read that it's in the himalayas and he goes yes it is in the himalayas as long as you are in the himalayas it is a gland that's the soma plant and uh, it exists inside the human brain and it is at the pinnacle of Mm -hmm. consciousness that's the himalayas the pineal gland exactly yeah and it produces a celestial brain chemical that's soma and when the soma is produced by that plant that gland the source of the soma the juice flows through the individual and raises their consciousness to the highest possible level so he said now you know where soma is and you're here in the himalayas so you found soma in the himalayas (laughs) 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 that's just such an interesting thing because in the west we are so literal it seems to be one of our big problems that we want historicity we want literalism we want you know we we don't know how to think connotatively as joseph campbell puts it we think denotatively and it's our denotative thinking and literalism that then leads to fundamentalism which then leads to people being blinded and having their hands chopped off and things like that because that's what something literally said somewhere once or that, you know, soma comes from a plant, so you go searching all around the Himalayas for this plant that doesn't seem to exist anymore. And, you know, if you could get a drink of that stuff, then it would be better than ayahuasca, man. Yeah. Um, or because you can't find the plant, you yeah. say it doesn't exist anymore. There you
0: are. Yeah. And, and so this then is what's you... happening with the world of yoga with yoga academics these mm-hmm. days, too. Mm-hmm. Same story. Mm-hmm no offense yoga academics there's a lot yeah, to be learned you know right. a lot of text to be
1: translated but don't take these things too literally that's right um, you know literalism is the the fatal blow to the depth and perspectives of ancient knowledge you know the knowledge is ancient enough we don't have to pin it down to a specific year you
0: know, yeah just or has... assume
1: that because it's in a book what's in the book is the actual thing yeah or even worse on
0: the internet yeah (laughs) definitely even worse
1: (laughs) also Uh, fascinating yeah
0: i mean um uh, that's uh, an entirely different topic but it has been in vogue over the past 10 or 15 years for this new academy of yoga to try to show where the yoga which is being practiced quote-unquote today meaning krishnamacharya and people like that really came from and that because they were not able to find textual support, uh, they looked to the next level where they could find support, which was from Swedish gymnastics by a guy named Niels Buch. And so obviously, they were then connect the dots made between how this Swedish gymnastics and the YMCA movement came to India in the 1920s and 30s. And obviously, Krishnamacharya was influenced by that. And, you know, that's why we have the yoga that we do today. And uh, and then they say, well, that's not exactly what we're saying, but it, it is what they were saying. So then a publication came out by Kaivalyadam of a book called the Hatha-Bhyasapadati, which contained 112 asanas uh, in it, which was more than most other books. And a very good scholar named Jason Birch has recently done a very authoritative translation of it. And it shows that there was an 18th century text that might have been earlier, older as well, contained many, many asanas that were then showing up in later texts as well in different forms. That if you keep looking in India, eventually you're going to find something, which proves the point of what the Indians have been saying all along, which is that yoga has been around like this for a long time. Maybe it looks a little bit different now, but it's been around for a long time. And just because you don't see it written down in a book doesn't mean that it wasn't there and the academics can only say if we don't see it in front of us in a book then it doesn't exist yet this is colonialism mm-hmm. uh, at its highest yes so little by little they keep finding the texts which prove what the indians were saying all along and then they go oh yes so you know now it exists <laughs> yeah. it's really
1: maddening it's uh, uh, it's so interesting because of course the knowledge which we refer to as veda there was no attempt ever to write it down until 800 years ago it was an oral tradition going back thousands of years, and so you couldn't find it, and that was intentional. The ancient Vedic culture knew of the dangers of book burners. Uh, book burners have been around for millennia. You invade a culture, you want to subsume all of their holidays, rename them, let them continue having them, but you know change them out. Do a little bit of divide and conquer. Exactly. And you want to get rid of any texts, even if they're written down on parchment. So the ancient masters knew all about this, starting with uh, Vyasa's adopted son, Shukadeva, who was the inventor of the monastic tradition. He was the first innovator of that. Shukadeva could foresee that India's relative freedom from external invaders by virtue of its Coastline, and there was not good navigation in those days. So to get a navy or an army across the sea to India was complex. And then on the roof of India to the north was the Himalayan Massif, which to get an army across the Himalayas was well nigh impossible. But it was inevitable that people would figure out how to do it. And so Shukadeva created the first tradition of social misfits, people for whom the idea of relating to somebody was anathema people who were natural hermits. And he said, you know, it's less than one in a 100 people. We'll create places for them and we'll train them in the oral traditions. And they won't live in any place that's coveted by any invader. No big boundaries, no seaports or cities or anything. They can go to the mountains, they can go to the jungles and they can live in this, these settings where they can have their natural hermit life But their job is to be the backup disk, as it were, you know, to maintain the Vedic knowledge in the oral tradition. And of course, you know, with the arrival of the Mughals, which, you know, we can read Mongols into India, the entire Vedic culture was assailed dramatically, and an attempt to rub it out took place. One of the things that I read that is a very fascinating example of this is that, you know, the the heads of icons of uh, Murtis, of statuaries of Vedic gods and whatnot uh, would be twisted off and placed as the doormat with the face up on the home of the Mughal uh, masters. And Indians were required to keep their shoes on and enter the home and to wipe their feet on the face of the Murti on their way in. Of course, the Indian approach to that is that our shoes are now blessed. (laughs) (laughs) It all backfired, you know. (laughs) You know, wait till you go there and you know then then they would take their shoes home and you know lay them on an altar because they'd been blessed by the face of the murti <laughs> meanwhile the Vedas were safe and sound in these monastic traditions but the householder tradition of daily practice was eroded dramatically over a period of time until the moguls were assimilated and ended up becoming Indians <laughs> and you know the style of Islam that they originally brought to India ended up becoming very Indianized, you know, India is one of the only places in the world where you go into a mosque and take your shoes off at the door. Indian Muslims are really quite different to Muslims anywhere else in the world. The interesting thing out of all of this is that the scholars of the West trying to find where Vedic knowledge and yogic knowledge originated. During the 1920s and 30s, the movement that later on became Hitler's Socialist Party of Germany, the Nazis, needed to find a reason why Germany was the source of civilization, and it was cultural hegemony, you know, it was cultural colonialism. And so Hitler who was fascinated by the symbology of the ancient Vedic masters in part of his book burning campaigns was to selectively find amongst all the other books that were being burned any books that referred to Vedic knowledge as having come from India. And so the Arya people which was the name of the ancient Indian race suddenly became the German people. We are the Arya people, we're the Aryans. And to prove it we'll take one of the primary symbols swastika swastika itself is a sanskrit word which means auspicious auspicious and to take the swastika and make it our symbol and own it and we are the Aryans, and so then the historians the germanic historians began to create a tale of the invasion ancient invasion of india that you know europeans white europeans went to north india invaded the place in ancient times and then created the Vedas, and then from there came back to Europe and colonized Europe. And this bizarre twist in the history of where ancient Vedic knowledge came from, that it came from Europe and not from India, was, you know, obviously a cultural hijacking. And interestingly enough, though, it's had repercussions down to the modern day, you can still read Western scholars who would never consider that they were influenced by Nazi history theories buying into this idea the that... The Aryan invasion. The yeah. Aryan invasion, yeah. that these white Europeans went over to India and took over and created all the good stuff, yeah. which we now find coming back to us. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's um, when you are in India and you see places like the Great Moths, the Centers of Learning, the Academies of Learning, Jyotramath has in the far north in India a particular temple where the Shankaracharya sits for six months of the year when it's not snowing. And there on the wall is a succession with dates back to the time of Adi Shankara and it is 2,576 years. But modern scholars insist that Shankara must have lived in AD 800, and the simple explanation for that is that the name Shankaracharya was shared by all of his disciples. They were all Shankaracharyas, and so Western scholars may have read when things started getting printed for the first time around 800 AD, there's somebody named Shankaracharya who wrote this book, and therefore that was the original Shankara. He didn't live 2,500 years ago. He lived 800 AD. There's a lot that we have to learn. There is. And a lot of cultural challenges that we have to accept, that assertions that are being made that are based in our fundamental Western idea that we're right because we're, we're right, right and haven't didn't yeah. everything that was good come from the west <laughs> yeah.
0: no didn't everything that was good come from white people yeah, i mean basically that's what it is yeah mm-hmm. i mean david frawley and subash Kak have done a lot of writing about debunking the
1: aryan mm. invasion mm. theory mm. but it got embedded mm. it's sad mm. yeah and it's pervasive correct me if i'm wrong but i believe the first time we met was in your Broom Street Temple. Yep. Where the Ashtanga Yoga Club was. It was Shivaratri. Quite
0: late at night after you had finished a course. It was after midnight that you would come. Yeah. And which is when things start getting good on Shivaratri. (laughs) Yeah. And two AM when things get a little like weird. (laughs) And uh three AM when you're at the tail end, you know.
1: (laughs) So um yeah, we had a nice time sitting and talking. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that. The, the night we became brothers. Yeah, I'm so I'm so happy that my memory is accurate. And tell me what has happened since then. So Broom Street, sadly, is no more. Yeah, that building got sold. Mm-hmm. My landlord bought another building in Brooklyn mm-hmm.
0: that he allowed us to move into. Oh. and now we have a townhouse. We have there's a, a Baptist church, a French Baptist church, and then there's adjoining it. In their old rectory is now the Brooklyn Yoga Club. Mm -hmm. On the ground floor, we have our yoga school and the Ganesha Temple. And then on the floor above that, we have a library, a bed and breakfast room, a cafe, a communal space, a big outdoor deck. Floor above that, we have another B&B.
1: And then on top of that, I live with my wife and my daughter. So we have a nice little compound. And what's it like getting out of Manhattan and going to Brooklyn? It's so nice.
0: It's so peaceful. You just cross over the bridge and you feel everything like relax. You know, all the Mm -hmm. energy just drops down. Mm -hmm. And the quality of life is so much better. Mm -hmm. We really love it out there. We have trees and birds and crickets. And Mm -hmm. it's like living in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. Don't the Manhattanites want you back? Yeah. I mean, you know, in the morning time classes, we're seeing 100 or 120 people every morning. Mm -hmm in manhattan we moved out to brooklyn and we went down to 20 people a day Mm -hmm. we've spent a couple of years building it back up Mm -hmm. so now things feel like they're chugging along pretty nicely Mm knockwood and um the community of brooklyn is growing we have a lot of new faces coming in a lot of younger people and um it's really nice out there it's a different feel it's not as hectic Mm -hmm. um because city life makes everyone feel hectic so it's good
1: and some of the manhattan people come and Others have migrated other places. You know, I hope that your Manhattan clientele continue crossing over to Brooklyn, but I've heard whispers about something new cooking. Yeah, there's a possibility
0: that a friend of mine named Lori Levin, who's an old, old student, she and my wife and I are talking about opening something in Manhattan in her old tattoo space in the East Village on 3rd Street and 2nd Avenue. And what we're talking about is how to bring some of the idea of yoga as a ritual as a sacred ritual to the forefront of the practice still teaching ashtanga yoga and all that but to have this overarching kind of um intention or philosophy that this is a ritual that you do and uh, we would also have um courses at this particular location that would be sort of life literacy courses like um we want to do a course called intro to death and dying And uh, a course on habits and procrastination and a course on financial literacy. And uh, some of the things that begin to say like, okay, I'm, I'm doing some yoga practice, but what does this mean for my larger life? You know, what I really need is to be able to pay my rent or maybe save for the future. How do I do that? So we're looking at all these different types of things in the same vein of one simple thing like, what is it that people need? What are the questions that people have that could be maybe answered in a simple kind of a way in a few week period with some more support from people? So within these courses, say, um, there would be uh, uh, the teacher acts not just within that, say, a four week period teaching once a week, but there would be some sort of follow up that happens each day where the lessons that you learn in the courses become integrated into daily life we don't want it to be another alert that you get on your phone but we want to figure out how can people really integrate some of these ideas so that it becomes normalized for them and Mm -hmm. then they can just carry on with their lives Mm -hmm. could we do those things in brooklyn also yeah we can do them in brooklyn too but because she already has a space and because it's so much smaller and contained we might look at it as a little sort of a a cooking pot for developing um, a next step Mm. integrating a conscious lifestyle along with your yoga practice Mm. we'll see her shop is called the tattoo shop was New York Adorned and um, her other store is called Love Adorned so we're thinking of calling this the Adorned Yoga Club wow very nice you know because basically what is the adornment that you want in yoga you're adorning yourself with knowledge you're adorning yourself with the decorations not of like you know, a nice car or a beautiful house, but of um, compassion and kindness and awareness. These are the adornments of yoga. And when you see the pictures of Ganesha or Shiva, and uh, Shiva is adorned with snakes, you know, those are his his garments, his jewelry, mm-hmm. rather than a bracelet uh, or a necklace, he has a snake around his neck. So he's, he's adorned himself with the mastery of the senses, mm-hmm. um, or of the constant coiling and uncoiling of the snake, which is infinity, he's adorned himself with infinity.
1: So, uh, the Adorned Yoga Club. Eddie, thank you very much. It's been fabulous just conversing with you. Sharing a conversation with hundreds of thousands of listeners is a lot of fun. We probably should have just had this conversation privately over a lunch, and that's what I hope it kind of felt like for our listeners who joined us. Thank you again, and may our friendship and alliance go on forever. It shall indeed Thank you so much for having
0: me on. It's been wonderful to listen to you. In fact, I wish I had let you talk more because you are a wealth of knowledge. So as I said, I'm going to start a podcast. (laughs) You're going to be my only
1: guest. (laughs) Fantastic! I can't wait. I'll be there. If you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts and make an individual donation. Thank you.